0: Welcome to Que Pasa, HSIs, a podcast dedicated to everything Hispanic-serving institutions. I'm your host, Dr. Gina Ann Garcia, bringing you the news on what's happening in HSIs. Join us as we explore the history and evolution of HSIs, culturally relevant and liberatory practices, current and emerging research with HSIs, and the policies that shape servingness. Saludos HSI familia and welcome to the show. Today we are talking to Dr. Whitney Purdle, Associate Professor of Sociology and MacArthur Foundation Chair in International Justice and Human Rights at the University of California, Merced. Welcome Dr. Purdle, to Que Pasa HSI where we talk about all things HSIs. But first, we jump in and we want to learn about you. So start us off by just telling us a little bit about you and, and your higher ed journey. How did you get to be an associate professor? What was the path to, to associate professorness? Mm-hmm.
1: Thank you so much for having me here today. I'm excited to get into this conversation. Ooh, where can I start? I grew up in East Lansing, Michigan, which is a college town. So Michigan State University was sort of in our Um, backyard. My experience was a little bit different than a lot of the folks in the area, though. My parents had both dropped out of college uh, at MSU. And so I lived in subsidized housing, was raised primarily by my mother, uh, but exposed to a college experience just by being in a college town. And so I think early on that drove a lot for me and wanting to know more, wanting to you know, understand more about how institutions worked, and how I could get access to that. So that was a big driving force for me, I ended up going to Grand Valley State University, which is on the west side of Michigan. This is before proposal Two hit Michigan, and they did have huge diversity recruitment efforts, uh, which I Benefited from. I think I'm a product of how successful those things can be because if you um, met the merit requirements, had a strong GPA, which I did, I was very involved in school. uh, And if I applied and got in, I could get some tuition funding. And so that ended up being the only institution I could afford to go to. And that's where I went. It wasn't necessarily my first choice by any means, but it was the choice that got me to where I am today. And I'm very thankful for that. I remember by the time I was graduating, I was among a group of students who were trying to protest to save sort of the affirmative action stipulations that were happening in Michigan and were unsuccessful. So it's just interesting to reflect on that, especially today after the what's been happening with the Supreme Court. Um once I was at Grand Valley State University which is a primarily white institution and I would say the diversity has gone down since um since the ban has occurred in Michigan uh but it was it was quite evident to me that it didn't serve students of color in a way that we felt we might be best served. So I was very proactive on campus um trying to sort of do that work among my peers um but also some way some where along the way found sociology as my disciplinary home and decided I wanted to go to grad school. I was a McNair scholar, and that was very beneficial for me. And I applied to a bunch of graduate programs and ended up going to Vanderbilt University, which is a primarily white institution in the South. Um, That also was a very different experience for me for being low income, like first gen, you know, I had a primarily white institution for undergrad but we weren't elite. There wasn't a lot of people with money. It was still you know, somewhat of a community college. It was growing um, and so going to Vanderbilt was a whole new world for me being at a private institution especially in the south where they have a lot of old money. So that was a very fascinating experience. Um, again, I could see the ways in which the institution might have failed students of color and also how class really interacted to shape those experiences. Um, And so I obtained my PhD from Vanderbilt. I was applying for jobs, and I learned about this university called UC Merced. It is the newest UC um, and the newest research institution, really, in the United States. And so no one knew a lot about it but they were hiring and I was excited to see what this campus was about. So I've been on faculty since 2014 and it has been such a learning experience um, because it is quite different than both of the institutions I have had experience with. Um, it Yeah, our students are primarily students of color. I would say almost 90% students of color. It is a HSI. And it is a HSI in a different way than a lot of other HSIs in that as it was started, it could have had HSI designation. It always has served a lot of Hispanic Latinx students. Um, and it also serves a lot of students who have Pell Grant funding, like I did when I was an undergrad, who are first generation, um, who are trying to navigate college without a lot of resources. So it has been a really wonderful place for me to be at. I really do resonate and connect with a lot of the students. Um, It has been a big learning journey too because I hadn't had experience in HSI and being some place in California and being at a new institution and having things like being created (laughs) on a daily basis. Uh, So it is a really hands-on get in there and do the work and try to create this university that we might want to be in
0: wow, you're right. Three very different institutions. And you, you, you described them like a, like a higher ed scholar, like you distinguish the differences um, between them in really powerful, important ways. Um, And thank you for bringing in the affirmative action context too, right? Because that is such a important conversation happening right now. And we know that when affirmative action is um, banned, it affects the number of students of color who enter colleges and universities. It's it's been proven in Michigan. It's been proven in Michigan and in California. We've seen it. Yeah, in both of your uh, states, or what? Two of your at least states, right? That have been in higher ed. So, so yeah, you started getting into this idea of HSI. Uh, so tell us a little bit about that, or we call the servingness journey here on Kepasa right. HSI. It's like, how did you come to know? HSI.
1: Well, I feel like it is hard to be at a place like you, Simmer said, and not have that terminology (laughs) in your face. You know, so even um, right away, coming to the institution, being in different meetings, maybe even orientation, where you have. Uh, folks talking about all sorts of things, you know, how to deal with students, how to submit reimbursements, also how to apply to grants, which we know that's (laughs) one way that they like to really discuss the HSI status in terms of collecting money. (laughs) And so I think early on, we were told, you know, that this this was the HSI, but I think it was less clear what that would actually mean for us um, and mean for me as a faculty member here. And so I think that it was a bit of a journey. I, you know, was curious about what the HSI designation meant. It is true that the number of students in my classrooms, especially in the social sciences, are majority Latinx, and I would say majority Latina. And so it was very evident to me, and that this is a particular student population, and one that I hadn't had a ton of experience with, being in West Michigan and um, Nashville, Tennessee. And so in terms of the classroom, it was a bit of a jolt, I would say, an exciting jolt to really, as a race scholar, as a critical race scholar, to try to think about if I'm teaching these topics of race um, and equity and justice and theorizing, I really need to get beyond the Black-white binary that I think was somewhat uh, not confronted in the other institutions as much, just because it wasn't the framework in which we were reading, and it wasn't, the student population really hadn't um, expanded in that way. And so I still think of, you know, race theory helping us theorize white supremacy and anti-Blackness, but at least in the classroom, I had to think through other instances of racialization and experiences and um, other intersections that impact our students, like legality. And so it really did shift sort of my approach to teaching and thinking uh, in terms of critical race theory more broadly. But I would say another part of that journey, I think, is being one of a very few Black faculty members on campus and having Black students often coming to me and asking for support in various ways and, and wondering, you know, seeing that sort of juxtaposition or maybe even conflict and that this is a minority serving institution and um, we are still like minoritized in a particular way and how can we try to rectify those that that area of conflict so I think I guess to answer your question a little bit um, better is that being at, at HSI has shaped yes, my professional experience, both in how I think about race and racism, how I teach about race and racism, but how I interact as sort of um, an agent within the institution.
0: Yes, you've said so many things that I'm like, oh my gosh, you probably could have a whole research agenda just on multiple things you just said, (laughs) right? Like, Including the fact that when you're talking about uh, Latino, Latinx, Hispanic, it's not actually a race, right? And that that gets complicated because then we, you know, sort of call it a broad race. Um, so how does critical race theory come into play even in HSIs, right? And mm-hmm. deconstructing the level of anti-Blackness in the Latinx community, which we're going to get into. Um, there there's so many layers, right? So even just being a, a race scholar within HSI, Um, So yeah, let's talk about it. You're a critical race scholar with research exploring issues relating to race identity, inequality, health equity, and black feminist praxis. Your latest work includes writing on COVID-19 pandemic inequities and institutional anti-blackness. So your research on anti-blackness is especially pertinent to our listeners as you are writing about anti-blackness within the context of HSIs. I've read and cited and discussed in public lectures your article called "I Didn't Even Know What Anti-Blackness Was Until I Got Here: The Unmet Needs of Black Students at Hispanic Serving Institutions," published in Urban Education. So let's talk about it because it is it is a super relevant talk uh, topic. So first, let's just talk about what is anti-blackness. How are you defining it?
1: Hmm. Yes. Yeah. Anti blackness to me, and my engagement with, you know, other scholars who are writing about this is, um, I would say a particular racial ideology that frames both the black experience and the treatment of blacks in the United States or globally, the anti blackness is global. (laughs) But I'm thinking I guess in particular about the United States and then also in terms of institutions. And so it is sort of a theoretical framework. I see it almost as another flip of the coin to white supremacy. So we know that white supremacy situates whiteness as as supreme and therefore allocates resources to, to that category at a disproportionate rate. Anti-Blackness, I think, um, because of the ways that race has been formed, especially in the United States, sort of sits at the other end of that binary. So if you have white supremacy as thinking of whiteness as pure and good and supreme and should therefore have all these things and power to dictate the rules, anti-Blackness is at the other end and situates Blackness as 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 subjugated, as disadvantaged, as dirty, as negative, and and therefore shapes experiences of harm, um, discrimination, alienation, and and things of that nature. Um, and so, when I'm thinking about anti-blackness, I am thinking about those ideologies that allows that to be upheld, even when they're not sort of front of mind. It just they become embedded within our ideas. Um, also, our institutions and our everyday experiences. So anti-blackness is both institutional in that it shapes resources, um organizations, but it's it's personal too, in that it's it's a felt experience often and and it's hard to describe. Uh, but black people understand it, I guess is is one way i might I might try to define anti-blackness.
0: That's important, right? Like, because the the idea of disputing that, like, it's not anti-Blackness. You're like, we we just know, right? Like, there is a a just knowing. So thank you for that. And the extreme opposite of, of white supremacy. Wow, that's a powerful way to think about it. So you in the article talk about um, how how anti-Blackness shows up in HSIs in three levels, which I really loved. I I like, as someone who thinks about it like in that sort of way and thinks in these organizational um, different levels of an organization and societal and interpersonal, you defined it in that way. Um, So you said institutional Blackness, organizational anti-Blackness, and interpersonal anti-Blackness. Talk to us about the different levels and why it's important for us to understand it as multi-levelled.
1: Absolutely. So I got to campus in 2014, which some might recognize as one of the first, like, national waves of Black Lives Matter protests because it was in the the wake of Mike Brown's murder. And so I got to campus in a moment where the black students were agitated in a way that I think is very inspirational. So I don't I don't say it in a negative way, um, but they were sort of confronting at a societal level issues of anti-blackness and wanting blackness to matter. And in particular matter at UC Merced. I remember attending protests with the students and they had flyers, especially the black student union had a flyer and it says, we are the missing 5%. And I'm not exactly sure where they got their statistics, but because UC Merced is so new, when the campus um, was first started, it was a small you know, student population. And there were reports that there were about 10% enrollment of black students, which it doubles the amount of almost every other UC. And so it was, they were thinking like, what, oh, is this new UC Merced, a, place where black students might be incorporated and and served in an interesting way. It's so new. we don't have any of the old baggage. Maybe this is a place. But within a few years the reports came out again and the black student population is hovering around six, five, four percent. And so they were confronted with the missing five percent why are you discussing us as like being so different and new and we don't feel that and all of a sudden our numbers are at least our proportion is dwindling um, and now we are even you know, lower than the state population of black folks in California and we're matching the UCs in a way that we didn't want to and so the students were, were mad for all of those reasons um, and they found me very quickly and I don't know that it had anything to do with who I was. I think I was the right faculty member for them, but it was just there were so few of us here. There were five, uh, five tenure track faculty when I got to campus. Um, and so I, I mean that literally. There were so few, and all of us were tapped in different ways. So I had a group of students who said, you know, we are looking for a faculty advisor. We want to create a space for Black students on campus. Um that can become beneficial for us, almost like a home base. We've learned that other UCs and other institutions have these um, halls or dorms or what we call living and learning communities. And we wanna try to build one at UC Merced and they named it Afro Hall. And I said, sure, I mean, I'm also looking for a home here. This is so new. I, I don't see a lot of black people in my day to day and this could be you know, mutually beneficial. And so that's how I started working closely with this group of students who named this hall space even before they had a hall. And so I started working with them right when I got to UC Merced and um, have continued to work with this space for the last uh, nine years, I suppose. And it has grown in really exciting ways, sometimes frustrating and very tiring altogether. Um, But we now have, it is a living and learning community. There is a graduate fellow who works with them. And we have just in the last year hired a black student success coordinator who is now taking over my job as LLC manager, which should have never been my job, but it was <laughs> for the last eight years. So we have some sort of institutionalization. But I was working with this hall and they kept advocating for things on campus and and also naming their experiences. And I said, you know, being like student support actually is not my job and maybe not my expertise. And I don't know all these things, um, but I'm a researcher. And I think you all actually are like asking important questions for research and the research could be beneficial too. So why don't we do a research project? So a group of them signed up for our undergraduate research opportunities, which is a similar process um, to McNair. We call it UROC. It's Mellon funded. And so we started working together. We worked together for at least a year, um, going through all the processes, IRB, training, and then conducting focus groups and analyzing them. And so when I started out working on this project, I thought I was going to be writing um, specifically about Black spaces at HSIs that was sort of the entrance, like, what, what does this black space do for you all? How is it beneficial? Because um, I see you working hard for it. And there's a lot of like, the students are reporting, they're, they're not reporting, they're just telling me, like, I really like Afro Hall, it's helping me stay on campus. So I was like, what are those dynamics? And then, um, so once we got into the data, I'm reading these focus groups, we're talking amongst one's Uh, one another. And I'm like, this is, this is a story about this black space, but what is the story about even more is anti-blackness and how it is articulating an explicit need for this black space in order for these students to stay here. And so that was not necessarily my research question going in, but that was the answer that was produced, I I would say. And so in looking to go back to your question about thinking about anti-blackness at these institutions that the, at these three levels, the institutional, organizational, and interpersonal, that is what the data was telling us. Um, and you know, we 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 were in rooms together, we were using in vivo like independently, and the themes just were coming up loud and clear. And so we decided that this was going to be a paper on anti-blackness. Um, And it might still, and it still does discuss in brief how these spaces are a way to confront and maybe comfort in the face of anti-Blackness, but um, anti-Blackness is where we wanted to go. And so we started the focus groups really just by saying, what do you all know about UC Merced? Like, what do you think about it? You know, what does this HSI designation mean to you? And most of the students really did understand that it was an HSI um, by definition, but they described it as more so a PWI. And I thought that was very fascinating to me. And (laughs) maybe it's not fascinating to other people, but I was like, I've been at PWI. It's like, this doesn't look like a PWI. And I'm so fascinated why you would think this is a PWI. And they're like, um... Yeah, but do you see who's in administration? Do you see the chancellors? I mean, and we have had and do currently have um, Latinx chancellors, but there's been different transitions. And still, they could be white Latinx. I'm not going to put, I'm not going to identify them (laughs) myself. But you know, so they're like, we see these people who might, um, to us, we're perceiving as white. the professors are more likely to be white, even the Spanish speaking professors are more likely to be from Spain. Um, so for us, we're seeing in terms of who is who has power on campus, it is still contained within white folks. Um, and even I think in terms of like, yeah, their, their content of the classrooms and what they're learning, they just felt like uh, it didn't, seem to be minority serving more generally. And um, so at the institutional level, that was a really big theme that came out that maybe, you know, that like Black institutional support wasn't really there, but above and beyond, it was operating in a way that they thought these, you know, these other institutions were operating, even though they expected UC Merced to be different. Um, and then at the institutional level, I think the other thing was, was definitely resource uh, constraints. So I know you said you just talked to folks at UC Riverside and my colleague, Laura Hamilton just wrote this book called Broke. And it it's about the UC system and, and it focuses on Riverside and UC Merced. And it does some of the work that you've done in terms of um, basically that UC Riverside and UC Merced are sort of seen as like the more racially diverse UCs. We're also like the ones in the Valley or Inland Empire. And so they're not often top of mind and they do not have the level of resources that all the other UCs have. Uh, but they are the they are the institutions that are more likely to serve students of color, even if they're not Black students, but more students of color and more li- low-income students. And so that sort of student population designation, I think, like, goes up to the institutional level, too. And so there's a lot of resource constraints at UC Merced, even though we thought that we were getting money poured in to support this growth of the institution, um, it's just not necessarily at par to our sister campuses. And so within the institutional constraints, black students in particular felt like they weren't getting any resources that they might need to thrive. Um, That like, why didn't they have any black spaces? And if there were black spaces, why was it on the backs of their own labor? Um, Why were there not more black faculty and staff? Uh, You know, why is there not, uh, a Black Studies minor or Black Studies Center or, or you know, uh, support to study abroad to Black places. Like just across the board, they felt like there wasn't institutional support for Black students or faculty or staff. But oftentimes when they're talking, they're, they don't always focus on them. They're like, are you good? Like, where are your people too? Uh, do you have support? You know, they see it among those faculty and staff who support them and they just see like the dearth of resources. And so the resource constraints at the institutional level and then how it implicates the Black students is a big one. And how uh, primarily pe- white people are in positions of power, I think, really did show anti-blackness at the institutional level.
0: Oh, wow. thank you for the background. I love the background to the um, to how the research came about. Um, it just gives a very real. I mean, this podcast is is it skip past? decides what's going on? Or what's going on? How are we actually going to get to serving this right? And so you added these layers upon layers of like why we're not at like ideal HSIs yet, right? Despite UC Merced being, I say, born as an HSI, right? Even without the designation, literally being born as an HSI, having the numbers to be an HSI. um, But there's all these layers, and I think it's also fascinating that the student said it operates like a, it feels like a PWI, right? You're like, have you been to Vanderbilt? Yeah, I know. <laughs> I'm like, what, what? <laughs> not an HSI. I mean, this is not a PWI, but it gets into layers of other things, right? Like privatization and uh, uh, like resources and all these other things, right? So, so no, I I ooh, I, I learned a lot. I also was thinking about. Um, in many ways, these students perhaps retained you. I think about retention a lot, right? Yes. It sounds like they did, yes. right? Had they not found you, you might've like just gone into your you know, corner of whatever Merced and UC Merced and been like, I don't belong here, mm-hmm. you know? Like, um, but in many ways y'all sort of created those spaces. Uh, so, so the importance of even counter spaces, um, at HSIs and at, I mean at all institutions, but at HSIs, the need for counter spaces for black students and black faculty. Like that's real, right? We need to be talking about that. And we need to make sure we're allowing for that and providing resources for that. Um, if we want our black students and our black faculty to actually thrive in an HSI where they're not the number one, um, or not the number one, but the, the largest percentage, right? Um, and that's the reality of, of most HSIs. So yeah, no, I, I, you, you gave me a lot to think about and I'm sure everyone listening, um, but I don't know if you wanted to touch on the other two. Um, I mean, the interpersonal is fascinating to me because that's, that gets at uh, the student to student, right? The students to student racism that we think about, right? Um, um, as part of this anti-Blackness construct. So I don't know if you want to say any of that about some of yeah. the experiences they were having.
1: Yeah, yeah. Yes, the institutional level to this is it did take a lot of nuance I think right because in terms of my researcher hat doing focus groups is is very fun for me Uh, and I think the students really enjoyed you know any moment where they can be around other black students so actually they really enjoyed the focus group experience we have black students who were, you know, um, African immigrants or mixed race or some Afro- Latinx. So they're navigating their own sort of identities, and it was interesting even within those focus groups to be, to you know, see those play out even among black students. But then when I asked them to speak about their relationships to other black students to see those, um, how they reacted to those questions, and you know. I think somewhere in the article and for any higher ed scholar, which I'm not, I'm dabbling. I'm writing my like a uh, next review statement. And I'm like, this is a new area. This is what I'm, <laughs> I'm seeing myself in. I'm not quite there yet. Yes. But, come um, on over. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you know, these, these uh, institutions of higher ed are like microcosms of larger society. And so you watch. So uh, the things that happen out there often happen here too even if you have you know this supposed level of understanding because of the classroom experience but um people come in with different notions about themselves, their racial identities what an in group and an out group is um and so I think the focus groups allowed for that to be discussed because they're talking with one another about their experiences and can see like, oh, I had this experience and then you had this experience. And so maybe this is a pattern of experiences that we're having. And so the students would talk about when I asked, you know, okay, can you share um, what it's like to be a student here? How do you interact with other students? How do you interact with faculty? Just sort of trying to get at the interpersonal level. And I, for the most part, they would say, "Oh yeah, like I'm cool. I have, you know, a Mexican roommate or um, a mom friend, or I'm in this organization. Like I'm, I'm pretty cool on a one-off." Uh, but. <laughs> I feel like our groups are, don't really interact so much um you know it's still like why are there a black table in the cafeteria um we we have this black space which we really want and some people think that we're self segregating but do they understand this is like the only place for us and um and they'll say well and then this time, I had this experience, and this time someone said this to me. And then, you know, so they were talking about these experiences with microaggressions and then like explicitly, you know, um racist experiences. And so they felt like they could feel anti-blackness at an interpersonal level through those patterns of experiences. So let me think through some examples that the students talked about. um they would say, you know, we would always try to put on cultural shows um, or do events for the whole community. And we would try to get people to come and no one's showing up besides other black students. But when other events happening, they're expecting like us to show up too. So it may be like, uh, you know, they do Cowcella at Merced instead of Coachella because there's a lot of cows here. Um, so maybe even like who they're asking, who they're bringing out, like what type of music that caters to those sorts of things. They would feel some level of exclusion, um, or why aren't you all showing up? But they felt like it wasn't reciprocated, even though they were trying to do like huge cultural events. Um, one interesting story that stood out to us was when a Afro-Latina student was talking about how she would show up for class and people read her as black. And she would say she would go sit, you know, in the classroom and no one would really talk to her when they were making small talk or groups. Um, and sometimes they would speak Spanish. And then one day she talked to somebody and was speaking Spanish. And she, she's, she described it as like the heads were turning, like, oh, wait, you? Um, and they didn't see her as that. And it, it, she had to like go above and beyond and signaling some connection to Latinidad to feel included. But that didn't feel good to her, like it didn't feel good that she had to do those things. And so for her that anti blackness, um, you know that other other folks of that community talk about really resonated on our campus. And she felt like there wasn't a lot of space to to have that identity supported and she actually really liked being in Afro Hall and connecting with black students, even though she was at HSI. There were other students who had interesting experiences, some who were mixed race, white and black, who uh, people might have perceived as white passing. And so they had that those experiences of like slippage that scholars have written about white passing, mixed race students had these experiences of slippage where people would not see their blackness. And then they would hear the anti-Blackness front and center, like, oh, look at them. Or even saying, you know, racial epithets and things like that. And and having that hard speir- experience of freezing, like, do I confront it in this moment or am I not safe? And so that feels very harmful for Black students. Uh, and that is another reason why they might go back to Afro Hall and be like, y'all, I had this experience. I can't share it to anybody else. But like this fucked up (laughs) these people are racist um and in particular they're focusing on blackness because they are around white students and asian students and latinx students and they could see across these groups feeling that blackness was set aside in a particular way um deemed as less good less worthy less smart All those things, and so I think that helps articulate the anti-blackness even more. And that is where the title of the article came from. A student said that um, I think when they were talking about instances of racism, like I, you know, I was raised pro-black. I know what it's like to be black. I know, like, my parents taught me how to confront racism. I did not know I would have to confront it to this level until I got here. So I didn't know what anti-blackness was until I was around. non-white, non-Black people who are still being racist to them. So that's like the anti-Blackness that they experienced.
0: Yes. And it makes me think about um, the Racial Innocence book, right? By Tanya Hernandez. Uh, When I read that book, I was like, this is going to be HSIs because the Mm. critical mass, right? Like she talks about that. Like when there's a critical mass of Latine people, the anti-Blackness gets even more pronounced, right? Because it's like the critical mass is there, um, and then you know, never mind that there are Afro-Latino people within that critical mass. Um, but yeah, that book was so powerful when I read it because I was like, "This is this is the HSI space." Um, and some HSI's are, are already there. There is the critical, it's 50, 60, 70%. Well, UC Merced might be there, right? Like yes. that Hispanic 60%. students, mm-hmm. 60% is a lot, right? Yes. That's the critical mass at the student level, of course, mm-hmm. but it is, it's a lot. So, whew, all right. So yeah, you've given us a lot to think about. Um, but I think the the question that I then get asked, even when I explain anti-Blackness in an HSI context is like, how do we disrupt it? Right. Mm -hmm. What do we actually do about it? So I don't know if you've thought through that. Right. It's like, how can we actually disrupt this on a daily basis? How do we start to disrupt this on an institutional level, which really is what needs to happen with HSIs? We cannot expect it to just go away like it's going to have to be at that institutional level. So
1: what are your thoughts on that? What do we what do we do? That is the big question. And I don't know that I have the big answer, but I can try to offer a few <laughs> a few answers that are informed by this research and other literature. Um, for one, I think naming it, that a lot of folks don't want to name anti-blackness and want to think of their institution, especially if it's minority serving, as, as serving all students. I think in the wake of 2020, you know uh, a lot of institutions did have to confront anti-blackness we saw a ton of institutional statements <laughs> about anti-blackness um commitments to address it uh and i think now that we're in 2023 we can see whether or not this happened or not at uc merced there was the valuing black lives task force that was created and um i know that <laughs> there's a lot of critiques of task force and what they can do um But I think trying to um, name it and also think about who has been naming it and bringing them to the table is very important. And so asking students like in the wake of this, if we're gonna address anti-Blackness, what would that look like for you? What do you need? What are those needs and how can we like put money and resources and time and the institutional support behind that? Some of the good um, that has came out of it at our campus I'm not sure how well it will be sustained, Um, but uh, we did now hire a Black Student Success Coordinator, uh, which I think is very beneficial. I also don't think that that should be filled by one person because they have been, you know, hit by all sides, and so I would say an increased support for that. Um, There are some initiatives going on on campus that I've been a part of, too. so trying to support black research excellence and having some funding for students who are interested or faculty and staff. Uh, we put on a symposium yearly of, for these fellows or for anyone who's doing research to try to support it. And and honestly, just keep naming it. You know, that that's part of the goal too, um, that this doesn't go away with one cycle and definitely not one statement. <laughs> I know that there was still some pushbacks Uh, Once the report on the valuing black lives task force was put out, because the way in which it was written was that the institution has done all of these things, and the students read them and say, Oh, wait. We did these things. We advocated for a center. We decorated the center. Um, we went out and built connections with the ABC conference. Um, we've helped retain faculty and sort of their labor has been very erased. And so I would say that is something that institutions need to do better um, to see the work that the students and faculty and staff do and put money and resources and time and effort into those things without co-opting it in a way that can feel harmful and leaving students feeling disregarded. Um, And also, I think one thing that the article reiterates is this huge need to support counter spaces. um, That, that if the institution has not yet become a place that feels inclusive or that serves students in their cultural and other needs, then these other spaces within the institution can really step in and do that work. But it is so hard to try to run a counter space when you feel like you're getting you know, attacked for even having that counter space. Like, why do you need this? Um, Or why is this beneficial? Why do you need more money? Why do you need, you know, that feels very tiring. (laughs) Um, But these spaces are so productive. And so I think that's one way that institutions can, can begin to address anti-Blackness is to see who on campus and what on campus is being a space um, that is supportive for Black students, and it, and in that way does confront anti-Blackness and support those efforts that are more so like on the ground and really cultivated by those who have that experience and those who are trying to work on it. I think in my article I cite work by um, Warren and Cole, and they theorize about these Black educational spaces, um, and they say that they're. Fugitive spaces, like almost taking, you know, an idea about Afrofuturism that tries to tell us about a world that we would want to be. Um, and how that these, yeah, they're we describe them as counter spaces or maybe a third space, but what if we looked at them as like the future, as as this um, place where we want to be and try to like come together and build that space? So they talk about it as community building spaces. Um, that support the self determination and self efficacy, and I think if we have, if these are you know organizational spaces, we can build them up and embed them more within the institution so that they can become sustained at a level that they're not constantly threatened or attacked. So I think that's that's one way we might try to address anti blackness.
0: Yes, you gave us a bunch of ways. I I, I love them all. Um, and you got me thinking about a lot of things, even like in in, in my newest book, Transforming Hispanic servant Institutions, um, I, I sort of do that same sort of like freedom dreaming, right? That's like Afrofuturisms, like what if it just was like this, right? What is, these were just liberatory spaces, but then my higher ed brain also kicks in and I'm like, the only way we do anything is if it's written down in a strategic plan, right? <laughs> that, that's higher ed. Yeah. <laughs> so- so yeah. then I'm like, okay, fine. We can dream and color outside the lines. But then if it's not in the strategic plan, we ain't doing it. That's the reality of white administrators, right? Which is what is still at HSI. So, so then I say we'll put it in the strategic plan, right? Um, and and we we don't see that. Who, where does it say in a strategic plan or in a mission statement uh, we disrupt anti-blackness? Yeah. No, it says we value diversity. To your statement about co- uh, statements, right? We value diversity here. No, you don't. <laughs> yeah. And we don't care about you valuing it. We want you to disrupt the anti-Blackness, right? The, the racism. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it's like, uh, yeah, I, I agree. There's You gave us a lot to think about. Um, and you got me thinking about like, oh, what about this? What about that? Um, but the creating of spaces, I think, is so important. Um, the other thing that came to mind is when you talk about Black students doing all the work and not getting any credit. Um, I was listening to an episode of uh Blacktivism in the Academy. I wish I remember who that guest was. I don't remember because I binged a bunch, but um one of their guests was saying, like, pay black students, right? Like pay them. If they're in leadership, if they're the president, if they're an SGA, whatever it may be, like pay them because they're laboring,
1: they're laboring for you and getting zero credit. Mm-hmm. I was a part of an, an initiative this year. Uh and related to inclusion, justice, DEI-ish, even though it wasn't called DEI, I don't remember. And at the end, they told us they had pockets of money for initiatives that we wanted to start. And I was like, I am not starting anything else. You can use whatever money that was designated for me to support the people who have been doing the work. <laughs> But that's not, yeah, that's not even paying people for what they did. It's like, do, like, you did a lot, so now you're here, and now you can do more. And I'm like, just, can you just give it to the, yeah, the student presidents, give it to somebody else. uh, But don't ask me or them to do any more work. Um, And honestly, like, that, okay, I don't know if it's been tested on institutions of higher education, but we know like a basic income actually can be very beneficial for communities. And so like, yeah, taking that model and adopting it for change agents on college campuses, like that could that could be a very progressive way <laughs> that we might address some of these issues. So I don't know. Absolutely, oh my gosh,
0: yes. I, it sounds like it, you're in this conversation, you've done a lot of unpaid labor. Uh, you yourself as a black faculty member. um, So yeah, say no. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Say no, y'all got to pay somebody to do this. I mean, you, the fact that you said you were directing the living learning community. I am a a former student affairs practitioner. That's what student affairs practitioners tend to do. Not faculty research. Faculty, You're a research faculty member. Yeah.
1: So yeah. yeah. I'd be in these rooms and I'm like, how many, why am I the only faculty person here? Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm it was so hard to articulate that for those in the room um, for like my review panels, you know, in, in so many different ways. And like, this is um, what Tressie McMillan-Cotton says is like uh, our jobs as faculty mm. are not our colleagues' jobs. Mm. And it's so hard to describe, but my job has not been a typical job. Uh, we have more. <laughs> we do yes. more. Yeah.
0: Absolutely. And especially in a place like UC said that you've described as a very unique place in that it's it's a, such a new institution. So it's just it's building its identity um and growing and doing things like hiring a black success coach, right? Like things that other institutions have been doing for, you know, a long time already. So whew, well, some of your work has been um Acknowledged, right? You uh, have been doing obviously a lot of DEI uh, efforts on campus and you won the Office of Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion's inaugural Equity and Justice Award in 2021. So at least you've been acknowledged for it. <laughs> Yay for that. Congratulations. Thank
1: you. Thank you. That was <laughs> that was really great. And, you know, um, other folks nominated me. So that was a full surprise. So there are people. So thank you to my colleagues who do see that and, and want to support that work.
0: Yeah, for sure. That that's wonderful. Um, I mean, in thinking about servingness as a black professor, you—I mean—I think you've described a lot a lot of it. But um, is there anything else you would say about like how, what is your role in in making sure servingness is happening? You you mentioned a lot of your your um, students are Latinas, right? Um, and so you are doing servingness, right? With Latinx, Latina community—not just Black students. Um, so, what? How do you see your role in that, and in, in
1: actually enacting serving us? Yeah. Um, one thing about me, through any institution as a student to you know now being an associate professor is that I show up, and not everybody does, and not everybody can. So that's fine, and not everybody wants to. Um, but for me. Yeah, working with students, cultivating students, learning from students is such a benefit of this job. And so when the students ask I do show up. And that has been for black students, that's so true, but if there are other cultural events or dances or fundraisers, you know, I'm I'm there. And so that just is who I am and so I've appreciated building that rapport with the students and and learning from them and engaging in their work and and seeing where solidarities and community buildings lie across, you know, across groups. And so um, I definitely enjoy that part. It adds to the job, um, but it also fulfills aspects of the job that, you know, sitting down at the computer cannot for me. the students, you know, I have appreciated in in the many ways they have shown up. There's been so many different instance, instances that happens, you know, when you're a faculty of color who uses their voice. So I've been on campus reform before, uh, alongside students, you know, for things that we've tweeted and they're, they're like, how do I support you? And I'm like, how do I support you? Or how are we supporting each other? And, um, you know, oftentimes, it can be a simple statement, like, I don't support that the university did this. And the students will see that and and um, appreciate that. So um, I have been, as I mentioned, I was working with Afro Hall, and I was noticing within the hall that they wanted space to think about their race and identity. And it would happen, you know, informally in the dorms. Um, but oftentimes as a first year student, it would happen with, you know, without any sort of guidance. And our university rolled out these Spark freshman seminar classes. And I decided to create a Spark class catered towards Afro Hall students, but of course, any student can can enroll. So mine was titled Black Identities. And I taught it for three years as as an add-on to my load. I was paid for it, but it was an additional class because I was very interested in it. And so I had, yeah, 17, 18, 19-year-old students really come into the classroom and we would get into identities. We would start by thinking about, you know, ideologies of white supremacy and anti-Blackness. We would think about how racism is manifested, also issues between, you know, colorism and intersectionality. And then we would go through and talk about different Black identities, like what is it like, well, how are identities formed, Um, how are they shaped once you grow older, how are they changed at an institution, Uh, but also let's talk about Black immigrant identities and Black mixed race identities and Afro-Latinx identities, and let's, let's get into it, because I think sometimes they're trying to learn who they are, um, and especially even within their black space. And they would be like, wait, this type of black is different than that type of black. And now I'm confused about blackness. And the whole goal of the class is to say, blackness is diverse and it's expansive. And there's so many ways to learn about the black experience in the United States and globally, that it's it's a way to like frame your experience, but beyond you. And I also had um, a lot of students who were not Black in the class by nature, you see Merced. And so I would, at that time I explicitly framed it like, this is a class about Blackness, so we're gonna read about Blackness. Um, but when I'm asking you to reflect on your identity, reflect, reflect on your own, like, you know, apply it to yourself. And I just love. The, the growth I could see in these first year students over the course of a semester and understanding who they are and just doing things like, um, yeah, let's journal and then do a creative exercise. And people would produce like zines or uh, pictures and mosaics that like represent their lives. And it was very important for the students. And I think for the hall in that a lot of times people would look at this hall or this black space and say, it's so, um, like, exclusive, or you're self-segregating, or isn't college about learning about the new experience, and I'm like, hello, Blackness is so many different experiences, and so it, like, the sole goal is to say, like, we can think through Blackness to learn about the world around you, because everything that's happening out there also happens within this, like, umbrella, and so I really enjoyed that class, and that's one, I guess, another way that like serving us for Black students can show up in, in the types of classes. And if we have the ability to teach those classes, um, I taught it as an add-on because it's not a sociology class, which is where my home base is. And now they don't allow that. And I haven't figured out a way to continue teaching it. And that's, I, I think, an institutional problem. Um, And so that's, you know, it's like we make these steps and then something happens, some policy changes, and we go back. So I got to figure out how that can be maintained. Um, but that's my next book project, actually. So you asked about my work. <laughs> I'm writing a book on Black identities with polity press, um, really reflected from that class and this experience with Afro Hall and, and trying to um, de uh, disrupt the idea that Blackness is a monolith and how that is shaped by anti-Blackness and to thinking more so about Blackness as an expansive category and how that can confront the anti-Blackness that we see.
0: Excellent. I can't wait for it. Congrats on the book project. Thank you. It'll be a few years. (laughs) Yes, (laughs) Yes. of course, as any good book project is. (laughs) I want to acknowledge something you said about, just something that struck me really powerfully is that you said, I show up like it seems super basic but a lot of faculty don't show up for students right that actually is a really important um and it makes me think about the urban ed literature about how uh you know a lot of like white teachers in urban ed schools um they come and they teach and then they go back to their suburbs and the teachers that actually have this much bigger impact are the ones that that live in the communities right with with predominantly black and brown kids, right. in these in in urban schools. Um, And if I'm not mistaken, you live like in the Merced community, right. Like pretty close to campus. So, so you, you, you embody that, right. Like the fact that a a student might bump into you at the grocery store, the literature actually says that is important, right. Like that, that is showing up too, right. Just even living in the same spaces as, as students, but um, yeah, showing up seems super simple, but it's not people don't don't necessarily do that so so I wanted to to you know make sure I we re, re, retweeted that <laughs> um and then you I wanted to also acknowledge that you also won another award you're over here winning all the awards getting all the flowers um the 2020 a Wade Smith award for teaching mentoring and service from the association of black sociologists so I think these awards are a reflection of like you are you do exactly what you're talking about right like you you show up for students you're thinking critically about them um but i wanted to ask you a little bit about your teaching philosophy and Mm -hmm. you gave us some of that in this like course that you were able to teach but what about something you said also made me think what about when it is sociology 101 and it's not race yeah Um, how do you still be culturally relevant or race conscious or a critical race scholar in those sociology spaces that students didn't sign up for that which we know that's when Black uh, faculty in particular get those low ratings, right? Um, because students are like, I didn't sign up for race. Why is she talking about race? So yeah. talk to us <laughs> about that, about your teaching philosophy, right, and in, sure. in your, n- your normal teaching mode.
1: Yeah, sure. I mean, I am thankful to be at UC Merced and in front of these students where teaching sociology uh, really taps into their lived experience. Um, And I'm saying this coming from Vanderbilt, where I had a lot of anxiety going into the classroom because people would, the students I thought um, didn't really see my level of expertise as like a young Black woman scholar. And the students here, for the most part, I think, see that. They see some aspects of them reflected in me because I am also, I share, you know, if they ask me questions. I mean, I'm not going to tell them my age, but I will share a lot about my experience. and try to connect with them in a way that makes sense in order to teach sociology Uh, and I always tell them you know especially when I'm teaching a class on race and racism um, I'm like you all are you know 95% of them are students of color and you all come into the classroom and believe you know everything there is about race because you're a race individual uh, but my goal is to actually teach you the skills and theories and frameworks and statistics so you can can have these conversations that are informed about race and racism. Like you're not yet an expert. I tell them you have a you're an expert on your lived experience and that's valid. <laughs> but as a sociologist, we're going to look you know we're going to look at gen- generalities and patterns and and really try to paint a broader picture of what's going on beyond an individual experience. Um. And so I tell them my aims, like I want them to be experts when they leave the classroom about race and racism so they can go out and have these conversations since they're confronted with it as a person of color constantly. When I teach classes not related to race and racism, of course, race and racism is gonna come up. I don't teach sociology one of one but I teach a sociology of health class, for example. And for me, that has, you have to talk about Racism and systemic racism, if we're talking about why disparities exist, or classism and capitalism, if we're talking about why. Um, socioeconomic disparities exist. And so I'm always trying to think through what they know at the in terms of their experience. Like, I was treated badly in a doctor's office or I didn't have access to healthy food. I'm like, okay, let's situate this. Where did you live? What kind of insurance do you have? What social category might help explain that you're positioning within the system? And so it's always like taking what they know and making trying to make a systems um, connection for them. I also do. I also spend time in each classroom trying to lay my idea of sort of classroom guidelines and but part of that is reflecting on what the students want. So I have a set of guidelines. Um, For instance, we say people of color, not colored people, you know, that's (laughs) that comes up. uh, that um, no human is illegal, because that might come up in our classroom. You know, there are things that I have seen, and I'm like, this is this is the space that I am cultivating. Um, I also am not one invested in policing language, but understanding that language is powerful for those groups who you know, have had it used against them. And so I say, I don't want to hear racial slurs in the classroom, but also if you're talking about your own group, that's that's your, your thing. Like if you're a black person, you say the N-word, I'm not going to call you out. And I'm also not going to use any other racial epithet towards anybody else and vice versa. But I just remember being in classrooms where maybe um, a student was like, oh yeah, my friend said the N-word and they're a white student and no one stops them. And I remember feeling like so frustrated and wanting the professor to step in. And I will step in. I will always step in if it's something like that. But laying those sort of guidelines down in the beginning, I think can be really helpful. And then asking the students like, what what else? What am I missing? Like, let's talk about gender identities. What are we doing? Do we want to, you know, everyone introduced by pronouns? So I'm, I try to inform my classroom space by my experience, but also just like who's in the room at the time and what that means. And I would say that, um, and just being like, y'all can correct me. I'm, I'm proud. First of all, from the Midwest. I'm mispronouncing everybody's name. It's so horrible. I try to do better. <laughs> I really try. I'm like, please, this is not a fault of yours. Correct me anytime. So like, I try to like bring in examples of corrections and then try to have that throughout the classroom too. Like, uh, I might be running late. I'm so sorry, but I don't, don't want to let you out late. Like, interrupt me if there is a problem, whether it's big or small, or whether I assigned a reading that you felt was thought was ex- like offensive i don't know what it is but let me know and so trying to build those classroom dynamics and um i just had to look through my evals the other day because i'm writing my review statement and that comes up constantly and i am so appreciative that the students see this and they say like this space um has been cultivating or I could have really good discussions that I haven't had in other classes or she respects me that's a big one and I find that the more I respect the students they respect me back um so I don't I don't often feel disrespected by the students but I think we build that mutual sort of respect of one another early on is my hope so that we can get into these deep sociological topics without people feeling like offended or that they can't share their experiences and I'm blown away every year by things that students share. Uh, it's hard because <laughs> I'm not a, a trained in that area either. But um, we, I assign readings on um, uh, DACA, and there's a ton of DACA students in the classroom. There's some readings about you know borders and immigration and deportation, and students will say, you know, I had a family member who's deported. And every time I'm like, thank you for sharing, or the students will jump in. Thank you so much for sharing. What do you need? How do we support you? Um, they disclose a lot of these things that we read and talk about w- w- through their personal experiences. And I just think that, um, like I'm honored for them to be able to share that in that space. And I take it, you know, that with that honor, I have to do something with it. And that, you know, so if they're going to share, thank you so much. And I can see that this resonates with this this reading. And and now we see how the law, you know, has impacted personal experience. So again, trying to think through their personal experiences and connecting it. And so that they know that it's not a fault of any sort of individual deficiency or problem with who they are, That that there are explanations and framings and policies that have shaped their own experiences like that i think as a sociologist is is one of my biggest goals in the classroom
0: thank you that was a lot and you have just given us so many good things to think through i i love it i i'm here sitting like taking notes and you just got me thinking about a lot of really important things um and i think i just i mean if I know the students appreciate you at UC Merced, but they, they really are lucky to have you. Um, They're all students, uh, Latina students, black students, white students, they all, um, you know, they should be appreciating you at high level. So I hope you keep winning all the awards and getting all the things and all the grants because I knew you're successful in that area as well. Um, But this has been such a beautiful conversation. So thank you for Coming on and talking to us on the pod and getting us uh, thinking about uh, you know HSI's, mm-hmm. but the final question, same question for everybody: How do you respond to the question "Qué pasa HSI's"?
1: <laughs> um. I don't know. I'm mean, like, what's good? <laughs> what we can talk about. We talked about it all. <laughs> we
0: talked about it all. What's good? I like that response, actually. What's good? HSI what's
1: where are we going next? Um, <laughs> I will I do want to say, Gina, you asked about like my HSI journey and I mentioned being at UC Merced, but I would say that you're definitely a part of that journey. Um, I read your book and your work because I'm at UC Merced. You came out. I said, hey, I got questions for you. I'm working on this article. You gave me feedback in real time. You have supported this work and a whole like generation of scholars. So um, definitely a shout out to you. And I think this podcast moving forward is a bigger testament. So you're a part of that journey too.
0: Thank you. That was I, I do remember that visit. And uh, yeah, I, we, we've we been in contact for quite some time. And at that time, I was already fangirling you um, and knew you were going to do some pretty cool uh, work around this really important topic um, um, about HSIs and about serving students. Right. in really intentional ways. So so thank you for that. And thank you for being with us today.
1: Thank you.